This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part three of our mini series called Mending the Divides, where we're looking at ways that we can build back better from COVID by becoming a church that really plays its part in bridging the divides and in bringing reconciliation where it's needed in our society. Now, I've taken the series title from the book Mending the Divides by John, John Huckins and Jer Swigert. And we're borrowing their framework as well for how to meaningfully engage on issues of division and injustice. That framework involves four stages, which just to remind you, are see, immerse, contend, and restore. So in part one, we focused on seeing racial injustice. In part two, we spent time exercising one of our most important muscles when it comes to divisive issues, which is the listening muscle, Uh, This is a key part of the immerse phase of the framework. And I do hope that you found it as interesting and as thought-provoking as I did, listening to the lived experiences of pastors Osian and Fatima Sabanda, who lead God's House Church and are some of our nearest neighbours in the city. And as we did that listening, by the way, I was also doing something else. I was building relationship. And that's something that I hope will define us as we come out of this pandemic that we would not be a church that exists in a bubble or in a silo, but that's willing to get out of our comfort zone and build relationship and be in those spaces that are less familiar to us and where we have a lot to learn, as well as hopefully something to contribute. Now, the four stages of the framework are things we need to work through whatever the issue is that we're focusing on. So they apply to racial justice, which we've been talking about, but you can also apply them to any other area of difference or injustice that you care about. So gender inequality or sexism, the experiences of women and the unfair treatment they receive at the hands of men, political issues like the new policing bill that has led to violence in our city so recently, Brexit, LGBTQ rights, attitudes towards disability, immigration, religious divisions, The list could go on because we live in such a polarized and conflicted world. And while we don't have time in this series to look in depth at all of those issues, my hope is that the approach and that the tools that we're sharing are ones that are helpful and applicable for any of them. Now, today I want to look in a bit more depth at what the Bible has to say about all of this, and in particular, what Jesus has to say. Because you may be thinking, Dan, I recognize that we have these issues and these problems, but I'm just not sure that the Bible, this ancient collection of books from a land and a time so far away, has much to say on the issues that we face today. And my goal for today is to persuade you that it does, that there is so much in the Bible on the themes of reconciliation, of peacemaking, of relating to those who are different to us, that it's actually quite hard to know where to start. So why don't we start just by looking at the teaching and the example of Jesus? And then we'll finish by looking at how these actually tie in to some broader themes that should really impact the way that we read and understand the whole book. So let's start with an easy way in. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked basically what really matters in life? What are the real fundamentals of our faith, if you like? Verse 35, an expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So according to Jesus, loving God and loving your neighbor is what really matters. That's kind of him establishing the bottom line. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us at seven going back to basics and saying that what we're about is loving God and loving our neighbors. It's not a bad starting point if we're seeking to make sense of our faith and mend the divides around us, loving God and loving our neighbors. And you can loosely link these with our big three priorities, you know, spiritual and emotional health. That's loving God, family, neighbors, and our city. That's loving our neighbors. So there is beauty in simplicity, and this greatest commandment can sound rather straightforward. But there are several massive challenges, of course, to living it out. Not least the fact that your neighbor is quite likely different to you. They may look different to you. They probably think and act differently to you. So when it comes to loving them, then there's almost inevitably going to be some challenge, some tension, even some conflict that's built into that command. That's especially true when you think that in today's world, neighbors come in all different shapes and sizes. We are much more interconnected now than people were back in the day. So there are neighbors that we live next door to on our street. There are those that we connect with through work or through our interests and hobbies. There are neighbors who we've never met in person, but we argue with on social media. There are neighbors who live on the other side of the world, but whose lives we impact. The products we buy, the places we visit on holiday, the causes we speak up about, we are so connected. And I don't think we have the luxury of pretending that we exist in a bubble or pretending that our lives and our choices don't impact others. So loving our neighbors in today's world, that's enough to keep us busy for a while. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In some of his most radical teaching, he ups the stakes big time from loving our neighbor to loving our enemy. Matthew chapter five, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. What Jesus is doing here is he's trapping us in. He's saying that whatever our differences, whoever the person is that we're having problems with, however bad the offense or the injustice, our response as his followers is to be defined by love. Now that was an idea that was so radical and so different to the attitudes and the approach of the society he lived in, that it arguably became the most distinctive teaching of Jesus and the thing that really marks him out from the other great thinkers through the ages. Activists like Gandhi and Martin Luther King are just the tip of an iceberg of people who've been inspired by these verses and who have changed history by seeking to live out this teaching. 
I've had the privilege of meeting people like Sami Awad and Daoud Nassar, both Palestinian Christians who have been able to respond to the injustice of living under occupation in the West Bank, not with the anger and hatred that is perhaps a normal and understandable response, but with a determination to love and for love to overcome injustice. Some of you will remember Sami, perhaps from when he visited and spoke at Seven. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of visiting him and also visiting Dawood's family farm, where his family have lived for generations, but which is now under threat of confiscation as part of the pattern of growing occupation in the Palestinian territories. And despite the unfairness and the ongoing pain of all this, Dawood has made a choice not to become bitter. He's done things like inviting Israeli soldiers who've been aggressive and threatening towards him and his family to share a cup of tea and conversation. He's renamed the farm the Tent of Nations as a place of safety and welcome for people of all nationalities and all ethnicities. At the entrance to the farm, they have painted the slogan, We Refuse to Be Enemies. And what's most noticeable to me about Daoud and Sami and about this teaching of Jesus is that it rejects the two normal and natural responses of human beings to injustice, which are to fight back or to give up. We know the shortcomings of violence, don't we? That it, it serves only to perpetuate itself and to breed further conflict. And some have mistakenly interpreted Jesus' words here to promote a kind of submission, a self-sacrificing rolling over, turning the other cheek so that they can punish us further and we can kind of somehow gain the moral high ground. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I think it's, it's very much about finding a different way, a third way to respond, which neither lies down and accepts injustice, nor fights back violently to harm or hurt the other. It's about responding proactively, creatively, but non-violently in the face of injustice. Choosing a response that exposes the injustice and that may even awake the oppressor to that injustice and may call out the humanity that exists within them. And although most of us can't relate to living in a war zone or living under occupation, it's worth us thinking about what this third way might look like for us. Because although we may not think of others as our enemy, when we talk about any of the areas of difference or division that I've mentioned, then those two default reactions of fight or flight are available to us. When it comes to talking about the other side, whether it's over the upcoming elections or Brexit or gay rights or Black Lives Matter, it is perfectly possible to take the posture of aggression or animosity or to dehumanize or demonize the other. That's surely one of the great temptations of our social media generation. It's also very possible to just ignore things, to run away from them because they're difficult. And I think part of our job as reconcilers and peacemakers is to find those new and creative responses. We'll be talking about that more in part four, but let's continue with our journey through the teaching of Jesus and move on to one of his most famous stories. It's a story that shows that Jesus was well in tune with the prejudices and systemic injustices of his day. Not just that, it shows that Jesus was willing to speak up against them, to challenge the status quo. 
And this is really worth us paying attention to, especially those of us like me, who are more naturally inclined to avoiding conflict rather than moving towards it. Jesus was willing to challenge. In other words, to risk conflict, to move towards a place of tension over the key justice issues of his day when there was something that was clearly not right. So in Luke chapter 10, in response to the question, who is my neighbor? He tells this famous story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And we have to remember that in Jesus' day, the priests, the Levites, the religious leaders, they were the good guys. They were doing their best to follow God's laws. They were adhering to the traditions and teachings as best they could. Sure, they were probably going a little bit too far, even making up some of their own laws to err on the side of caution. But in general, they were seen as the good guys. And in fact, the person that Jesus was telling this story to was one of them. So he would have felt it. He would have taken it personally when Jesus said that these men ignored the man in need. But then comes the real hammer blow of the story. Verse 33. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. If the thinly veiled criticism of the religious leaders would have stung, then this positioning of the Samaritan as the hero would have shocked his listeners. The Samaritans, you see, were on the outside, politically, religiously, and socially. From a Jewish perspective, they were half-breeds with a tainted religion. They were despised, subhuman neighbors who were to be avoided at all costs. Jews and Samaritans were two communities living in suspicion and in open hostility to one another. That would have made them the last people that Jesus would be expected to speak well of, but he does. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. In positioning the Samaritan as the hero, Jesus is pointing out people's prejudice and racism, the way that they viewed a whole group of people as dangerous or inferior, rather than seeing them as human. In verse 30, there's a detail that's easy to miss that but brings home this point. The man is stripped of his clothes and left for dead. In other words, he's left naked and unconscious. And this makes it pretty much impossible for anyone who comes across him to be able to identify his race or his background. The people who come by must choose to see him, not as a Jew or as a Samaritan, but as a human being. I love this because he's saying that our boxes and our labels are too small. Our understanding of God's love is too small. It's bigger and wider than we think. It encompasses all people, and he wants us to reflect that. 
Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So Jesus calls us to be a neighbor to any person, irrespective of race, religion, or any other defining characteristic that we might identify them by. It's a great story, right? But is Jesus all talk? Or does he practice what he preaches? Well, you don't have to look for long in the Gospels to find loads of examples where Jesus crosses all kinds of boundaries himself. Whether it be race or religion or gender, he was in the business of smashing through the status quo and defying people's expectations of what any self-respecting Jewish rabbi should be doing. You see, in Jesus' day, The Pharisees and the other religious leaders prayed a prayer three times each day where they thanked God for three specific things. They prayed, Blessed are you, O Lord God, for you have not made me a Gentile, you have not made me a woman, and you have not made me a slave. That's pretty shocking to us today, but it pretty much summed up the worldview that people had where they saw Gentiles, who are non-Jews, as being inferior. They saw themselves as special. God had given them a special role to play in the story of humanity, but they had misunderstood that role, and they thought that it gave them a monopoly on God and made them superior to others. When God had actually called them to be a blessing and a light to the other nations, just to open the doorway so that all could share in his love. This tendency to see themselves as a little bit special is not exclusive to the Jews, of course. Apparently, the Greeks at the same time had a very similar prayer to the one that I just quoted. And in our present day, you can see that the rise of nationalism around the world and of populist politics is another manifestation of this tendency that we seem to have to do this. And yet Jesus consistently went against these social and cultural norms and he modeled a different and better way. Have a look at the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, where it says he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And then it says now he had to go through Samaria. Some of you will know that Samaria was located between Jerusalem and Galilee, and it would have been the quickest route between the two. But most religious Jews would have taken the long road along the coast, or they would have crossed the Jordan uh, to avoid being contaminated by the Samaritans. So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, that only makes sense if you read the rest of the story and understand that Jesus had come through that region specifically for this encounter with the woman. That, according to his tribe, he should have had nothing to do with because of her race, her religion, and her gender. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Just think about the boundaries that he was crossing. And then turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, where we have the story of a Canaanite woman. Verse 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Again, the location is important because Jesus was outside the territory inhabited by the Jews. 
He was outside the provinces of Judea and Galilee, and he was in what is modern-day Lebanon, so very much in Gentile territory. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So happy ending, but whoa, this story has some really strange parts. Like when Jesus seems to ignore the woman that is asking for his help, where he seems to say that he's only come for the Jews. And not least when he talks about her as if she's one of the dogs. But I actually love this story because I think that there is something going on that isn't immediately obvious from a straight or literal reading of the text. I think there must be something more going on because that straight reading would run so counter to everything else that's, that Jesus seemed to do and teach. If you've seen The Chosen, you'll be used to seeing a more joyful, more playful or nuanced side to Jesus with that kind of glint in his eye as he communicates. I love that. And what I think is going on here is that the words Jesus was speaking weren't primarily aimed at the woman. What if they were aimed at another group of people who were listening? If you look back at the passage, you'll notice that there's someone else present during this encounter, which is Jesus' disciples. And I think he decides to use this occasion not only to help her, but to challenge the prejudices in the hearts of his followers. This was a teaching moment. He doesn't lecture them about neg negative stereotypes. Instead, he lets them observe and he leads them on a journey. By ignoring her, by excluding her, Jesus is acting out and revealing to them their deeply held prejudices. Essentially, he's saying to them, you would be happy if I get rid of this woman and limit my work to Israel. Well, very well, I'll verbalize where your theology leads us. I know that you think Gentiles are dogs uh, and you want me to treat them that way, but look at where your biases would lead us. Look at this woman asking for help. Are you still comfortable with your opinions, which say that she doesn't deserve our care or our help? And so again, he's digging away at the prejudices and the biases of his day. We don't have time to look at other examples, but a Roman officer who was the occupier, Gentiles in the Decapolis region across the river, women with the lowest social status, this is what Jesus consistently did. And it's why I want to argue that he should continue to be our inspiration and our example when we think about mending the divides in our own society and in our own generation. Things may look a little bit different, some things not so different perhaps, but the teaching and example of Jesus have so much to offer us and to the world.
No wonder that Paul, who played such a key role in the early church, and who would have known and prayed that prayer which I quoted, thank you God that I'm not a Gentile or a slave or a woman, he went on to declare, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. His choice of words is no accident. It mirrors the words of the prayer of the day. Uh, but he had seen a new and better way modeled by Jesus. And he went on to write some of the most incredible statements about the mission of reconciliation that Jesus was on. Colossians 1.19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Ephesians 2, verse 13 to 19. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So, while some people have understood this work of reconciliation and peacemaking to be almost like an added bonus to Jesus' work, kind of tacked on to the main work that he did in bringing salvation and forgiveness to the world, the truth is that the work of reconciliation was the main thing. It was the big picture goal of Jesus' life on earth. And we need to read the whole of his life, the whole of the Bible, through that lens of reconciliation and peacemaking. And then we begin to see that God is at work to make all things new, as it says in Revelation. And he calls us to be caught up in what he is doing. Have you ever noticed the verse in Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God? Have you ever wondered why Jesus said that peacemakers will be called children of God? It's because they bear the family likeness. When they act as peacemakers, they're acting like their father. That's what he does. Sometimes when people see my son Noah, uh, and what he looks like or what he does, people will say things like, oh, he's the spitting image of his dad, or he's very much your son, isn't he? They're recognizing a similarity between us. And this verse is no different. If God is the God of peace, which the Bible calls him repeatedly, and if he's reconciling all things, then when we act as peacemakers or reconcilers in small ways in our everyday lives, in the divisions and conflicts of our world today, then we are bearing the family likeness. In part four, we're going to talk a bit more about how we can do this, what some of the practical ways are that we can live well with difference, and how we can grow in the art of disagreeing well. But until then, 
let's continue to feed off the teachings and the example of Jesus. And let's say yes to any ways that we feel God's spirit prompting us to take those small steps to become reconcilers and peacemakers in our relationships, in the day-to-day situations that we find ourselves in, and in our city. Let's pray.